Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. have your Bible, go ahead and grab it. Turn to Matthew chapter 2. We'll be in Matthew 2 this morning. We're going to continue our study through the book of Matthew. So we'll see how far the Lord takes us. I'm just going to, we're going to take it as, as much as he gives us is what we're going to try to be obedient in this year. And so Matthew chapter 2, we're beginning a four-week series this morning called Fulfilled. Uh, Matthew, again, is a Jewish author writing a Jewish book to Jewish people. And he's trying to do so to prove to them that Jesus is the Messiah. He has fulfilled all of the prophecies that would make him the Messiah. And so he makes these statements about how Jesus fulfilled such and such. We're going to study a few of them throughout the course of the next few weeks. We'll get through Matthew chapter 4. Then after that, uh, prayerfully, we will begin to study the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll study that together for a number of weeks. And I'm pretty excited about getting into that passage. But we'll be in in Matthew chapter 2 this morning. Uh, So for those of you who don't know, a church tradition for hundreds and hundreds of years has followed a church calendar. More liturgical churches follow it more uh, strictly. But we are entering into what's called the season of Epiphany. We have just exited out of Advent, the season of Advent, where we celebrated the coming of Jesus and look forward to his future coming. But from that, the transition for the church, for the Christian church, now moves into Epiphany. Epiphany is the idea of the revealing of Jesus as the Messiah, that Jesus is who he says that he is. And it culminates, well, it actually begins on the day of Epiphany, which is January 6th, which I believe is this Friday. And then from there, the next Sunday, uh, we will celebrate kind of the day of the Church of Epiphany. But if you're paying attention, January 6th is 12 days after Christmas, which is why we get the 12 days of Christmas. And the ultimate expression of the Epiphany is at the baptism of Jesus, which we will study next week, uh, next Sunday. And so, but if you aren't Uh, rooted in and understand some of the church calendar stuff, I would encourage you to study it. I think it roots us in some really deep things. I think it roots, puts our roots in something that uh, has long lasting impact and reminds us that we're not doing this alone. We're not a standalone church. We're doing this with a group of churches who have done this around the world who continue to. So I encourage you uh, to study that. But over the next few weeks, we're going to study the revealing of Jesus through these prophecies. We'll be in Matthew chapter 2. Here's what I ask you to do. Uh, on the screen will be some scriptures we're going to use this morning. There'll be a number of them, not a ton, but a number of them. You can take a picture of it. You can write these down. I just want you to see I'm not making this stuff up. It's in the Bible, and you can study it for yourself to, to prove me right or wrong. A right would be great, uh, but wrong would be fine as well, and let me know if I'm wrong. But what I want you to do as I read through this passage is I want you to put yourself in their shoes, This is the part of the Christmas story that doesn't make its way into a lot of Christmas plays uh, because there's death and murder and destruction. And so it doesn't bode well when you have seven-year-olds acting out the parts. And so uh, this is pretty heavy what we're going to study this morning. But I want you to put yourself in their shoes and understand this is not a fairy tale. This is a real account of real people who went through these real things. And so as I read through it, please do the best you can to put yourself in their shoes. Matthew chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 12. The wise men have just left Herod, uh, have just left Jesus. 
and they've heard that there's some problems with Herod, so they're running the opposite direction. The wise men have come to visit Jesus. They've worshiped him. Herod has said, hey, let me know when you find him. I'd love to worship him too, only we come to find out he's not there for the worship. Matthew chapter 2, verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they, meaning the Magi or the wise men, departed to their own country of Parthia, Persia, by another way. Verse 13. Now when they had departed... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. I want you to put yourself in Mary and Joseph's shoes. You've made this long journey for the census. You've kind of been stuck where you are with this baby. He's 18 months maybe or so. Some scholars say only a few months, some say up to two years, but he's still young and you've got this baby and you've made this journey and now you get word from God in a dream that things are about to get worse. Celebrating the life of this baby, you gave birth in weird, awkward circumstances and then as soon as you give birth, a bunch of these men show up and they wanna worship him. So you let them in, and then a few months, years later, these men from the East come, and they want to worship him, and you just don't know what to do with all of it, and you're celebrating the birth of a baby who is the Messiah, and then you get this news that this king is out to destroy this baby. And Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So this time of year, I don't know if you do um, resolutions or not, if you have big plans for the year, but I would imagine that most of your resolutions are all good things you hope to accomplish. Yes, no one has a resolution to have the worst year of your life. No one has that plan. It might happen. I mean, we might have a better percentage if we aim for that. That might be better for us. But you've got goals and dreams for the year. A lot of them are based on how the past year went and the things you want for this next year coming up. And so that's great. And I, th- I think that's wonderful for you. But I just, I want to be honest with you. And I want to pastor you through a few things. This year will probably be a lot like last year. It'll probably be a lot like the year before that. And the year before that, and the year before that. I love you, and go after it, man. Lose your 50 pounds, uh, bench 350, whatever you want to do, that's fine. I'm just letting you know that the way life works, life doesn't care if you've turned the page in your calendar to a different number. And what happens in life, and your year will be a lot like this, you will have moments of great joy and success and pleasure, and you will have moments of great disappointment and pain and frustration. 
And I don't say that to urge you towards anxiety. I want to be honest with you so you know this going into it. Because what happens with the clean slate is that now we kind of wipe away all the disappointment and all we have is hope. But sometimes, or sometimes, at some point this year, you will face disappointment. At some point you will. And the question you have to wrestle with then is where was God in your disappointment? Where was he in the pain? Where was he in the valley? And I know we'd never say that we are prosperity people, that we believe God wants us to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. It's not what we believe that. And yet when bad things happen to us, one of the first questions we ask is, God, why would you? So I just wonder how much of that prosperity stuff do we have in us? That when we face hard times, the first question we ask is, is God actually good? Like his goodness is only based on the things he's given us and blessed us with. So as we study this passage um, this morning, my hope for us is to root us in some actual truth. And truth that is hopeful, truth that brings joy, but also truth that is real. Truth that I pray will carry us. This passage, as we study it, um, you're not going to get a whole lot of practical things from me this morning. As most of you are like, that's normally how it goes. I don't get a whole lot of practical things from you. Uh, is, it's going to be a little nerdy. It's going to be a little bit more teachy. But I'm coming to understand some things about God and about us as a church. I would much rather us know the character of God than know what to do with our life. I would much rather us know the character of God than give you five steps to a healthy marriage. Because I believe if you know the character of God, you're going to find yourself in a a healthy marriage. I believe if you really understand who God is, you're going to find yourself where God needs you to be. And so this morning, if, you're gonna, if you feel like you're going to walk out of here with 10 ways to have a great 2023, you might need to go find somewhere else because uh, this isn't it for the morning. But what I want us to root us in today is the truth of who God is. And I believe that's what Matthew is doing here in Matthew chapter 2. So the question we have to ask when you read any portion of Scripture, particularly the Gospels, is why did this Gospel writer use, choose these stories? Because you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four different authors with four different perspectives on the life of Jesus. And there are some places where it overlaps, but even the way they tell those stories is different. But they all have a purpose as to why they're writing their stories. So we have to ask, why this story? Why are we including these stories? Matthew has just given us the great news of the birth of the Messiah, and now the train is off the tracks. And someone out to destroy this baby. Mary and Joseph are traveling hundreds of miles. It's just everything has kind of fallen apart here. So I want you to remember a few things. First of all, Matthew gives us the genealogy, the origin story of Jesus. He gives us the genealogy and then he says, maybe this will help. And he begins to tell us stories about the origin of Jesus. It continues here into Matthew chapter two. This is going to tell us a lot about who Jesus is today. It's gonna reveal to us the character of God. So let's just study this passage together again. You're not going to be enthralled by anything, I don't think, except for God's word this morning. Matthew chapter 2, verse 12. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they, the wise men, departed to their own country by another way. So here's the first sign that something is off. Then verse 13. When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And if you're paying attention, Joseph dreams a lot, and he remembers them. And in these dreams, God speaks to him. Because God speaks to people in a number of different ways. And for some of us, he speaks to us in dreams. And he speaks to Joseph in a dream and he said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. 
amazing thing just happened, the birth of a baby, brand new life. Wise men have traveled from the east to worship and they have said, this is the king of the Jews. And then Joseph has this dream and in the dream he is told to run to Egypt. So a few things here that are really weird. Egypt. If you're paying attention the past year, Egypt is not a place that God's people like to be. Right? Egypt uh, brings back memories of slavery and pain. It's not a place of respite. It's not a place of safety and comfort. This is a place of, of pain and trauma. And God tells Joseph, a good Jewish man, a just man, I want you to take your family to Egypt. It's so bad here, I'd rather you be in Egypt than be here. So he tells him to flee to Egypt because Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. I feel like there could have been better words used there by the angel. Like I feel like God could have spoken differently to him, uh, but he doesn't. He uses the word destroy. He wants to utterly destroy the child. So verse 14, Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, which means in haste, in the night, they run from Bethlehem to Egypt. And God didn't tell them how long to be there. He said, I'll let you know when it's over. And they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So a few things here that we have to remember. Matthew is a Jewish author writing this book to Jewish people about a Jewish Messiah. And so what he's done is he's littered this entire book with Jewish scripture references. And what the New Testament authors do when they refer to an Old Testament passage, there's a few things that are happening. And one is that you have to understand this, referring to prophets, but a prophet is not a fortune teller. A prophet in the Old Testament was first referred to as a seer, someone who sees. A prophet, generally speaking, is someone who can see beyond the curtain of life and see what's actually going on behind the curtain. Do you understand what I mean by that? Like sometimes we get so distracted by the here and now, we forget there's something going on behind that. And so the role of a prophet in the Old Testament was to open people's eyes to the fact that what you are seeing is not all that is happening. There are other things going on. So the prophet would make statements. And most, most of what the prophets declare is not some future event, but it's some way to open the people's eyes in the present to see what's happening now in the present. And so when the New Testament authors refer back to the prophets, they're trying to make you see that what was happening then is actually happening now. That you can take the events of what will be Hosea's prophecy here and you can lay that on top of what's happening in Matthew. And therefore, we can lay that on top of 2023. We can lay all that on top because the prophet's just opening our eyes to see what's going on behind the curtain. And when a New Testament author would refer back to an Old Testament passage, his assumption or her assumption is that you understand more than just the words that are being said. So in the very same way, if I just gave you a random lyric from a song from your high school days, you would know more than just that one line, would you not? Like you would understand that that has a whole song. And for many of you, you would begin singing that song and you would begin dancing, some of you, and you would begin rehearsing everything that happened around that song. That's the idea here, that when a New Testament writer references, references an Old Testament prophet, what he's saying is it's not just about this line, it's about the whole story. And it's about how this story connects to a bunch of other stories. But here's the problem for us in 2023, particularly in America. We're not good at that, especially when it comes to the Bible. For a Jewish reader, they were raised to know the Jewish scriptures, to memorize them, to know them inside and out. 
By the age of 13, most Jewish boys would have memorized the first five books of the Old Testament, word for word. You and I struggle, don't we? And so what happens when we get to an Old Testament prophecy is that we just read the words. We're like, oh, this is prophecy of the future and some Nostradamus kind of moment. And so uh, Hosea saw a TV screen in the future and saw this happening. And so he wrote it down so people would know for generations. But what we need to understand is that this is all connected to something bigger than what we're just reading on the page. So I think part of my job is to help us to understand that. All right. So what he's quoting here, Matthew is quoting is from Hosea chapter 11. So to be on the screen, you can turn there if you want to, but Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Sound familiar? That's exactly what Matthew was quoting. But it fits into a whole bigger story. Verse 2. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals, to the false gods, and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim. Ephraim is a colloquial phrase for Israel to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. So 800 years before Jesus, there's a prophet by the name of Hosea. And Hosea is declaring to the people that they have lost their way. The people of God, that they have lost their way. And they've forgotten that he is the one who brought them out of slavery in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 4, if you remember our study of Exodus, Exodus chapter 4, God actually refers to Israel as his firstborn son. And so what Hosea is doing here is he's not giving us a forward-facing prophecy about the coming Messiah. And I want you to hear me say that. He's not saying, oh, what the people need right now is that they need me to tell them about what's going to happen in 800 years. What Hosea is doing is he's pulling back the curtain for the people of Israel and saying, listen, you're no different than your ancestors were back in Egypt. You're running away from God. Even though he's the one who has healed you and taught you how to walk, you are running away from him. What Hosea is doing is he's pulling back the curtain to show something about the past that relates to the present. And so Matthew then is using that here in this instance. But the word that is used is that he would fulfill So when you do some work with this word, because sometimes we just say words and we don't know what they mean, we just say them. So this word fulfill literally means to fully fill. That's what it means. Fulfill means to fully fill, to fill until it's full, to fully fill. So this idea then is that it's overflowing, to overflow what the prophet said, to fully fill what the prophet said. So the idea here is this, that what Hosea said in Hosea chapter 11, it filled up a little bit. It, it, it hit a meaning. It hit what it was supposed to mean. But it wasn't fully fulfilled. It wasn't fully filled until Matthew chapter 2 when Jesus would come out of Egypt. Does that make sense? So it mattered to Hosea. It mattered to his people. And he's looking back to the past, laying the past on the present. But what's actually happening is this present for Hosea is pointing to the future with Jesus. And now with Jesus, it is fulfilled. It is fully filled. Hosea is not giving us a prophecy of the Messiah. He's giving us a look behind the curtain for the present. But God had bigger purposes for that statement, which we carry forward into Matthew chapter 2. Which is why we're studying Matthew now, coming out of Exodus. I'm going to show you this chart, and I want you to see what Matthew was doing with Jesus here, okay? This is going to spoil the whole series for you, but here's, here's what we're going to be studying. Israel... 
God gave Israel tasks and callings and they failed every single time. And so what God continued to do was to give them new chances and new chances and new chances, but every single time they failed. And what God hopes they're realizing is you aren't the one to do it. And so what God does is God gives them a savior, a Jesus, a Messiah, and Jesus would revisit all the failures of Israel and he would complete them. He would fulfill them. So in Israel, they made a journey to Egypt. We studied that for all of 2022. You should know that part. Jesus now in Matthew 2 makes his own journey to Egypt to fulfill what the Israelites could not fulfill. In Israel, in Egypt, they face an oppressive king who was killing children. Remember Pharaoh killing boys, young boys. Two and under was to kill the boys. And then Jesus here in Matthew 2 faces an oppressive king who also happens to kill boys. Israel in Hosea 11 was called God's son and they were called out of Egypt, also in Exodus chapter 4. Jesus now in Matthew 2 is being referenced as God's son called out of Egypt. Israel makes their passage through the Red Sea. You're going to see here in Matthew chapter 3 that Jesus is baptized in the water. He makes his own passage through the water. After the passage through the water for the Israelites, they spend 40 years in the wilderness. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus will spend 40 days in the wilderness. 40 days because for 40 years, Jesus will be 70 by the time he's dying on the cross. And that just makes sense. So this is different, 40 days. But I want you to see what's happening. What Matthew is doing is he's laying the story of Jesus over the story of Israel and saying, he is a better Israel. And some would say he's a better Moses, a better leader for his people, leading them out of slavery. So when we read that Jesus fulfilled what the prophets had declared, Matthew's hoping that you understand it's bigger than just this statement from Hosea. Jesus fulfills all of it. Every way that the people of Israel had failed, Jesus does not. Then if you lay that on top of our story, in every way that you and I fail, Jesus does not, which is why he's worthy to be our savior. And he revisits the failures that he might redeem them. It's the story of, of redemption. And so Jesus is fully filling the statements from Hosea chapter 11. Let's go to verse 16 again. Matthew chapter two, verse 16. But then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Scholars and commentators would tell you about 50 boys aged two years and under were killed that night. Now, we just read that. It doesn't mean much to us. I want you to think about what that means. In this small region, 50 boys in one night were killed because of the edict of an insecure evil leader, murdered. I want you to think about the trauma that causes for a mom and a dad and a brother and a sister. I want you to think about the evil that's happening right here in Matthew chapter two. What was a great celebration of Christmas, the birth of Jesus, has now turned into a horrific sight across the region of Bethlehem. Little boys are being murdered because of some ridiculous insecurity of a king. This is painful, it's ugly, it's desperate. But then verse 17, Matthew writes, then was fulfilled, was fully filled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. 
a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Seems like a weird thing to be fulfilled, right? Like what's being fulfilled here? I don't understand. There's someone crying. Rachel is weeping. Well, Hosea 11 was the first prophecy fulfilled. Now, this one comes from Jeremiah chapter 31. You can turn there if you want to. It'll be on the screen. Hosea uh, predates Jesus by 800 years. Jeremiah predates Jesus by 600 years. And again, like Hosea, this is not a statement that necessarily points to this. He didn't, Jeremiah didn't mean this to point to Matthew chapter 2. He didn't write this with some vision of the future. They're going to need this in 2023. He didn't think like that. He's writing to his people to pull back the curtain that they might see what's going on. And he's writing it all in context. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. He's just sad. Just, it's just sad. He grieves constantly over the plight of his people and the way that they are uh, treating the Lord who had brought them out of slavery in Egypt. But there's one big moment in the life of Jeremiah and of the Israelites that sticks to him. During Jeremiah's lifetime is when Babylon would come in and siege Jerusalem. So Babylon, this great military power, makes its way to Jerusalem. Everybody wants this land of Israel. Everybody wants the land. They want Jerusalem. And so Babylon surrounds Jerusalem and the walls of Jerusalem. And for a year straight, Babylon tries to tear down the walls of Jerusalem. They lay siege to Jerusalem just outside of the walls. I mean, can you imagine being inside the city gates at that time for a year, not knowing when the day was coming? Nowhere to run to. You're just trapped in Jerusalem. At the end of a year, Babylon finally makes cracks through the walls and they invade Jerusalem. And they don't do so lightly. They kill everyone they can see. They destroy everything in their wake. They burn Jerusalem to the ground, including the temple of God the people of Israel had spent uh, years building. And they destroy the temple. There are some survivors left over. And so they take these survivors and they get them out of the city to a holding place. And that place is called Ramah. And they take them a few miles south to Ramah. And there is where they begin to chain up all of the Israelites to each other. And then they lead them on a 2,000 mile journey from home into Babylon. And Jeremiah writes his book, seeing all of this happen, seeing Babylon converge on Jerusalem, seeing the pain and flight and anxiety of his people, seeing them taken captive, seeing them fight against the will of God, and he's heartbroken over it. And so in Jeremiah chapter 31, he writes a poem about it. And in verse 15 of Jeremiah 31, he says, thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter, bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. So now the question we have to ask, the most Jewish readers would understand is, who is Rachel? Well, Rachel was married to Jacob. Jacob was one of the patriarchs of the Jewish faith. And Rachel is his favorite wife. Jacob had a lot of wives and other women who were not his wife that he treated like a wife, if you know what I'm saying, because there are kids in the room. But this is, Rachel was his favorite. I'm married to my favorite wife. I don't know how you are with yours, but I have my favorite one. And so this, she is his favorite. But the problem with Rachel is she was the last one to give him children. And she finally gets pregnant, but in childbirth, she dies. 
And in her anguish, as this baby is being born, she names him the son or the child of my anguish. I don't know what your name is, but it can't be that bad. And so that's what she names him. But Jacob says, listen, I'm not going to live with this kid named this forever. And so he decides to name him uh, the son of my right hand, which in Hebrew is Benjamin. But Rachel dies in a city just, and she is buried in a city just outside of Bethlehem, where many scholars would say this is probably where Ramah was. So before the siege, before Babylon comes in, there's Rachel who dies in childbirth. And if Jacob is a patriarch of the Jewish faith, Rachel is the matriarch of the Jewish faith. And in the place of her tomb happens to be the place where the people are taken into this holding tank before they're sent off into Babylon. And so what Jeremiah is saying is he pulls back the curtain and says, you understand what's happening right now? The mother of Israel is weeping over the anguish of her children. She's weeping over them. And Matthew's trying to lay that on top of the story of Jesus saying, do you understand that while this is happening, while baby boys are being murdered, while Jesus and Mary and Joseph are fleeing for their safety, God is weeping over his children. There's a weeping mother over their children. But because we've got to read all this in context, Jeremiah 31 continues. Thus says the Lord in verse 16, keep your voice from weeping. And your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. So here's what Matthew is hoping you're reading. That while there is weeping over the children, while there's weeping over the children of God, you don't need to continue weeping because they will come back from the land of their enemy. And where are Mary and Joseph going? To the land of their enemy in Egypt. And God is saying, yeah, it looks bad right now, but they're gonna come back. And where are they coming back to? To their own country, declares the Lord. So what was fulfilled in Herod's heinous murder of two-year-old and under boys? Well, that there is weeping, but this weeping would lead to hope that in hope all would be redeemed. So here's a picture so you can see of a map, just so you understand what I'm talking about. You see Jerusalem at the top right, Bethlehem down at the bottom, and then Ramah. Ramah was on the very road from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. So all along this path is where Mary and Joseph would have walked. Along this path is where the wise men would have walked. What Matthew is trying to reveal to us is, yeah, it looks bad right now, but you need to understand God has been working this plan for generations and nothing is a surprise to him. So then the third movement of this passage happens in verse 19. And when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. So now he's in Egypt and he has this dream saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. Finally, right? Finally, there's a breakthrough. Finally, there's hope for Mary and Joseph. Finally, things seem to be going their way. Herod's dead. They can go back home. They can finally make their way back to Israel where King David was raised, where Jesus and the line of David, the King of Kings, should be raised. Let's, let's go back. Let's go back to Jerusalem, back to Israel. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Then verse 22, but... 
when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod. So now Herod 2.0 is reigning. And Archelaus is not an apple that falls far from the tree with Herod. He is evil and insecure and vindictive. Joseph was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken of, of by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So, so you can see again, this, there's a map. Here's what's happening for them. They've made their way down into Egypt. They have this dream. Joseph has this dream that they can go back into Israel. Israel is that area there where you see Jerusalem, Ramah, and Bethlehem. It's the region of Judea. But now Archelaus is in charge of Judea, so they don't want to go to Judea. So now where do you go? You've already made your way, starting to make your way back in, and you don't know where to go. Where do you go? Well, I think you go back home. I think you go home. And so they make their way north through what's called Samaria to the region of Galilee in the north on the Sea of Galilee to a little town called Nazareth. Nazareth is where Mary is from. And about two years ago, they left Nazareth to go to Bethlehem. And what great timing for them to get out of town because of all the rumors happening. But now the rumors have gotten worse because now this teenage pregnant mom, now they have this baby. And it's weird whose baby is it? Is it Joseph's? Is it not? And now they're running away. Now they're in Egypt. Why would Jewish people go to Egypt? But they finally make their way back up another 80 or 90 miles north into Galilee. It's crazy. They had hope. And now that hope yet again has led them to disappointment and frustration. Have you ever felt that way? You feel like you have this carrot on a stick. You have the moments of, oh, it's going to be great, only to find out it's not going to be great. Only to find out the news the doctor told you actually isn't the right news. Only to find out that what you had hoped for your job is not actually the job that you had signed up for. And so they find themselves now facing more disappointment. But Matthew tells us this is all to fulfill something the prophets had spoken. But this one's weird. Because at least in the first prophecy, we knew it came from Hosea. It's a direct quote from Hosea chapter 11. And the next one, a direct quote from Jeremiah chapter 31. If you were to go in right now on your phone if, uh, or computer or iPad, whatever you brought with you, and you want to Google this phrase, Jesus, uh, a Nazarene, would be called a Nazarene, Jesus from Nazareth, Old Testament, you need to know you would not find any of them there. There are zero prophecies in the Old Testament of Jesus being raised in Nazareth. None of them. So this is weird, but notice the subtle shift in language. Now Matthew says the prophets, referring to a number of them. So now he's referring to more of an idea, a theme that the prophets have given us throughout the Old Testament. There's no direct quote here from the Old Testament. But the first time we get kind of a picture of this is in Isaiah chapter 11. The prophet Isaiah is given a prophecy of the Messiah who is to come. This is speaking of there is, there is someone coming and here's what I know of him. And so Matthew here is going to give us a bit of wordplay to make something significant out of what seems insignificant, which is the whole point of this passage. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. We need to do some work here in the Hebrew and Greek, but Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. This is a well-known Old Testament pro, uh, promise. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. If you remember studying the genealogy in Matthew 1, we reached a point where the lineage of Jesus had kind of died off. The kings had gotten so bad, God said, there'll be no more kings coming from you. This is the stump. This is the stump of Jesse in the lineage of David. You don't often cut down a tree hoping a new tree will grow out of that stump. It's not what you're hoping for. You cut down a tree to cut down a tree. 
And so what's, what's happening here, Isaiah says, is on that stump, there's a branch, a shoot coming up. And this branch from his roots will bear fruit. Now, here's what's significant. Isaiah is written in Hebrew. And the Hebrew word for branch is the Hebrew word natser. You could say it. Say natser. Okay, that's Hebrew. Then Hebrew is translated into Greek. In the New Testament, it's nazer. Say nazer. So that's Greek for branch or stick. Okay, everybody good? There's this prophecy in Isaiah about this happening. What is happening in Matthew 2 is that he's saying Jesus would be raised in Nazareth, which, if you're paying attention, has the word nazer in it. Nazareth in Hebrew, Nazareth in Greek. So if Nazareth means branch or stick, what Nazareth is, is the sticks. We get the phrase, the sticks. He was raised in the sticks. Do you get it? Jesus was a branch. And throughout the rest of Isaiah and even into Jeremiah and some in Zechariah, they pick up on what Isaiah laid down as this nickname for the Messiah called the branch. And Matthew is saying, I want you to pay attention. They're going back to Nazareth. Isn't this crazy, readers of Matthew? He was called the Nazareth, and he's going to be raised in Nazareth. This is amazing. This is amazing. Matthew himself is acting as a prophet, pulling back the curtain, saying, I want you to see this. That what Isaiah was saying about the shoot that would come up, it wasn't about Nazareth, but what Matthew is saying is, no, 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 we can lay that on top of this. And what you see is that what God has been doing from Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah is fulfilling itself now. But we didn't have eyes to see it. But Nazareth, it is the sticks. I mean, it's tiny. It's a podunk little town. Jesus calls one disciple to follow him and the disciple says, hey, aren't you from Nazareth? Jesus says, yeah, yeah, actually I am. And the disciple says, well, can anything good come from Nazareth? Because that was the understanding of Nazareth. Nothing good comes out of this little podunk, disappointing little town. Nothing good comes out of the sticks, nothing. But Matthew is making the point, no, no, the Messiah comes from Nazareth. The Messiah comes from the sticks. The branch out of a stump comes from Nazareth. So Isaiah takes this idea of the branch and he continues to flesh it out and build on it throughout his book of Isaiah. And it comes to fruition beautifully in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, verse two. For he, this Messiah, he calls him the suffering servant, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Does that sound like a, a branch from a stump? He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him, which is what they would say of Nazareth. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. If you hear nothing else this morning, I want you to hear Isaiah 53, 3. Jesus is acquainted with grief. And I know you've got great plans for your year, but you need to know you will grieve. And in your grieving, you will ask, God, where are you? Why did you let? And you need to remember Isaiah 53, 3. He's acquainted with your grief. He understands. He's, he's from the sticks. 
He's from a disappointing little town with a life in his early ages that was full of hope and crashing disappointment. He's acquainted with it. He gets it. And as one from whom men hid or hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely, Isaiah says, he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. What Matthew is laying out in Matthew chapter 2 is Isaiah 53. Jesus is bearing the griefs of, our, of us, of his people. Why these stories from Matthew? Because Matthew's trying to make the point. The Messiah has come, but he hasn't come in the way you thought he would come. He's come in a better way. He's come from the sticks, and he's come in grief and in sorrow because it's your griefs he's bearing. When you feel like your hopes have been dashed and you're met with frustration and disappointment in your marriage, with your kids, at your job, financially, in your health, you need to know Jesus experienced the same thing. And he's borne them. He's worn your grief. He's carried your sorrow and my sorrow. He is acquainted with our grief. But then look at verse 4. But we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. So here's what we do. When things go bad, when we are grieving, when we have sorrow, we esteem ourselves as stricken and smitten by God. Well, God must be angry at me. God must be taking out his frustrations of my sin. It's finally caught up with me. And what Isaiah is saying, we do the same thing to Jesus. We looked at the Messiah saying, man, he's just from Nazareth. We don't esteem him. We esteemed him not. Because he walked in grief and in sorrow, we esteemed him not. We thought that this man, Jesus, had been stricken by God. But verse five, but no, no, no. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah is trying to tell us that the Messiah hasn't come to make our wildest 2023 come true. He hasn't come to make all your dreams about a new business and a new family and that new golden doodle. He hasn't come to make all those true. In fact, he's just come to be what he told us back in Matthew chapter one, quoting Isaiah chapter seven. He's just come to be with us, to be with us in our grief and our sorrow, to be stricken, to be pierced for our transgressions. So the question that we're left to wrestle with this morning why are you following Jesus? Like, have you built up an idea of him that he is a genie in a bottle who will make all your wildest fascinations, fantasies come true? Because you will be sorely disappointed by that Jesus. Oh, this is a Jesus who has come to be with us. And in a world that we have ravaged with our own evil, he has still seen fit to come as we are in his own seasons of joy met with crushing disappointment, in his own seasons of hope of the future only to be met with frustration, he is acquainted with our grief. So if you're tempted this year to ask the question, where is God? Well, he's with you. That's where he is. Acquainted with your grief, a man of sorrows. Not just acquainted with them, but he bore them. 
He wore them. He carried them. And he carried them to the cross. So if you're following Jesus, whatever evil has been fallen you is not out of punishment. But God is with us to redeem what has been broken. So my encouragement to us this morning is to remember the gospel, the good news of Jesus. That he was born as one of us, to live as one of us, to die, to set all of us free. To be with us in our sorrow and our grief. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? don't know where you find yourself today, what your hopes are for the future. But if you're like me, you've lived long enough that maybe you've started to give up on hope. If there's anything I've learned over the past years that my only task in life is to be present with Jesus in this moment. That's it. And this Jesus has come not to fulfill our wildest fantasies, not to grant us any sort of worldly success, but simply to be with us. This branch from the sticks. Can good come out of Nazareth? Oh, you better believe it can. Can good come out of your disappointment? You better believe it can. Can good come out of your grief? You better believe it can. Because God is with us. Maybe you're here today and you're questioning the presence of God in your life. I've done it too. And he's proven himself faithful time and time again. Maybe what you're hung up on today is something of grief and sorrow where you feel like he just wasn't present because he didn't act the way you thought he should in that moment. Or maybe like the Jews, you're looking for a Messiah in all the wrong places. And in fact, he was with you. Father, you are with us. You are present now, even in your spirit. May we be drawn to truth of your character, that you have a steadfast love towards your people, a never giving up, never ending kind of love. So I pray that we would rest in that today and that we would see it in your broken body on the cross. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.